Let's open our Bibles to Psalm 99. The 99th Psalm. The Lord reigneth. Amen. Let the people tremble. Right. Words that are no longer popular, but words that I hope we love. Let's all rise together and read in unison Psalm 99. Together. The Lord reigneth. Let the people tremble. He sitteth between the cherubims. Let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion, and He is high above all the people. Let them praise Thy great and terrible name, for it is holy. The King's strength also loveth judgment. Thou dost establish equity. Thou executest judgment and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt ye the Lord our God, and worship at His footstool, for He is holy. Moses and Aaron among His priests, and Samuel among them that call upon His name. They called upon the Lord, and He answered them. He spake unto them in the cloudy pillar, They kept his testimonies and the ordinance that he gave them. Thou answeredest them, O Lord our God. Thou wast the God that forgavest them, though thou tookest vengeance of their inventions. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. Amen and amen. You may be seated. The Lord reigneth. We are so thankful to know that the Lord Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. And blessed and only potentate. He's not waiting to receive His kingdom. He has it. He said in Revelation 2.27 that He would give to those that overcame temptation in this life the rod and privilege of bearing, bearing rule over the nations as he had received from his father. He had already received it when Revelation 2.27 was written. The Lord reigneth, let the people tremble. So few today are going to be told anything about a God that is worthy of any trembling. They're going to have presented to them a God that is not worthy of trembling. A God that is their buddy, that is their co-pilot, that is their friend only. We worship a God before whom the world should tremble. And the rest of this psalm goes on to explain that even God's saints should tremble before this God. Let the people tremble. He sitteth between the cherubims. Let the earth be moved. The whole world should be affected by this fact that the Lord reigneth. But it's hardly mentioned anywhere. And it's something that we always want to teach our children. It's something we always want to teach one another. The Lord is great in Zion. Now, the Lord is great everywhere. So what does it mean when it says the Lord is great in Zion? He's known to be great. He's spoken of as being great. He is worshipped as being great. And he treats the members of Zion a little differently than he does the rest of the world. He is great in Zion, and he's known to be great in Zion. 
and he is high above all the people. There's no one to be compared to the Lord, even though the nation of Israel was governed by kings. Those kings could not compare in their authority and power to the God that they worshipped. He was above all the people. It switches to the second person in verse 3. Let them praise thy great and terrible name, for it is holy. God's name is great and God's name is terrible. The Lord Jehovah of the Bible is a terrible name because it's describing a terrible God. Terrible means someone with the power and the actions that causes terror. He is a terrible God, but he's also our father. But this psalm isn't emphasizing his fatherhood. This psalm is emphasizing his terror and his terribleness and his greatness and his holiness, all of which should cause us to tremble and be moved before him. Let them praise thy great and terrible name, for it is holy. God is holy, which means he cannot approve of any iniquity. And therefore, in his sight... We are objects of his scorn and disdain and hatred and malice and everlasting punishment. But that's why the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice is of such great value because Jesus Christ has washed away our sins, paid for every one of them, and clothed us with his perfect righteousness that we could stand before him in love, having been chosen for that wonderful position before the world began. Precious indeed. If you see the holiness of God, then the sacrifice of Christ becomes so valuable. The value of the love of God and the value of Jesus Christ's death for us can only be known to the degree you know, understand, and submit to the terribleness of God. Just mushy sentiment. There is no appreciation for that at all, and there shouldn't be. Because the Bible doesn't teach mushy sentiment. The Bible teaches a holy God that provided a sacrifice for us to put our sins out of the way that we could stand before him. Let them praise thy great and terrible name. One of these days we'll know how great and terrible it is. But I hope that by faith we can read the word of God and believe it long before that day. But he is not just terrible. Look at verse 4. The king's strength also loveth judgment. Now, that first clause is describing God. The lover of judgment here is God. And the judgment under consideration here is not punishment. The judgment under consideration is doing what is just, what is right, and what is equitable. I like the words, the king's strength, however. The king's strength. What king? You know, this is the time of David the king. David was a great king. But where did he get his strength? From the Lord, the king's strength, a way of speaking of David's God. The king's strength also loveth judgment. Not only is he great and terrible, not only is his name great and terrible, not only should men tremble before him, but they can cast themselves entirely upon him because he's always fair and equitable. And that's what the word judgment means there. The king's strength also loveth judgment. He always does what is right. And it goes on to explain that by saying, Thou dost establish equity. Thou executest judgment and righteousness in Jacob. All that you do is fair and right in the way that you deal with your people. So you can cast yourself upon them. 
You can trust that he's always going to reward you according to your works. He's always going to honor your integrity and your efforts because he's a just God. Verse 5, exalt ye the Lord our God and worship at his footstool, for he is holy. Now, God is exalted by himself as much as he can be. But the psalm here tells us to exalt him, and we exalt him in our hearts by giving him that rightful place in our own hearts and minds. We exalt God by lifting him up with our preaching and by our singing. We put him in his rightful place. And so the psalmist is telling us, exalt ye the Lord our God and worship at his footstool, for he is holy. You know, notice it doesn't say, give him a hug. It says, worship at his footstool. Get down when you're in his presence. Get down before him and exalt him. When you exalt someone, you put them up. But notice where you are to get someone else up, you're getting down. Humble yourselves this morning before the Lord. What does the Lord require of us? To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Do you despise having to get get down to his footstool? Or do you love the fact that you've been shown a God that has a footstool and it's above your head? I love a God like that and I hope you do with me. But we can do it in our hearts by exalting him and demeaning ourselves by putting us down where we belong. You know, the Bible says that any time a man thinks himself to be something, and I'm, I'm using the psalm, he says it's vanity. Right. Men of low degree are vanity, and men of high degree are a, are a lie. Right. All together in the balance, they're less than nothing. Amen. And that's what we ought to admit about ourselves when we come into the worship of God. Now, let, it, let him get your attention about how he treated his people Israel to see if he's worthy of exalting and getting down at his footstool. Moses and Aaron among his priests. There's two intercessors that prayed for Israel and saved them on many occasions by their prayers. Moses interceded for Israel how many times when God said he was going to wipe them out in a moment and start over with Moses and build a new nation. Moses and Aaron prayed for Israel many times and saved them. And Samuel among them that call upon his name. Did Samuel ever pray and deliver Israel as well? Yes. Are both Moses and Samuel two? of the five great men of Scripture that could pray and save entire groups of people? Yes. They called upon the Lord, and He answered them. This is why we want to exalt Him. This is why we want to tremble before Him. He called upon the Lord, and He answered them. Verse 7, He spake unto them in the cloudy pillar. They kept His testimonies and the ordinance that He gave them. Thou answeredest them, O Lord our God. Thou wast a God that forgavest them. When Moses would pray for Israel and say, Moses, step back, I'm going to wipe out the nation. Moses would pray, and God would not do what he said. But he is still a holy and a terrible God. Look at what it says. Though thou tookest vengeance of their inventions. When they refused to take the land of Canaan, a perpetual vacation... For Israel. Were the wells already dug? Were the cities already built? Were the vineyards already planted? God offered them a perpetual vacation and they refused it. He wanted to destroy them on the spot. Moses prayed for them. 
Did God hear his prayer? Did he forgive them? Did he kill them all as one man in one day? No, he wiped them out over 40 years. Look at what it says. Thou forgavest them, though thou tookest vengeance of their inventions. When you read this passage, you could think that the them all the way through it is Moses and Samuel. But Moses and Samuel didn't pray for themselves and get heard the same way that the people of Israel were prayed for by Moses and Samuel and was heard and God forgave them and yet punished them severely. So we understand this to be God describing His chastening power in the lives of His people. That though He forgives us, He forgave David on the spot for his sin. But was David chastened for a long time for that? For that invention? Were the people of Israel chastened for their inventions? Yes, they were. You know, you can look at Moses and say, you know, Moses invented something. God told him to speak to the rock, and he smote it instead. Was he chastened for it? Yes, he was. We're not told about events like that in Samuel's life to the same way that we know that about Moses. The purpose of those three verses, 6, 7, and 8, because we're told in verse 5 to exalt the Lord our God, and we're told in verse 9 to exalt the Lord our God, in between, we're told how he treated his own people, that though he might forgive, he still chastens. His chastening is the loving relationship he has to us as a father, but his chastening is terrible. He is terrible God and deserves for us to worship at his footstool. He may forgive on the spot and not strike us dead as we deserve, but he does chasten us, and therefore uh, the best place for us is at his footstool, begging for his mercy. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. He cannot look upon iniquity and approve of it. Remember the words of Joshua from a few Sundays ago? Joshua chapter 24. You all know the verse, verse 15, where it says, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Those are the words of a great man. But that great man said something else a few verses later. He said, Ye cannot serve the Lord. Because he is a holy and a jealous God, and he will not allow you to serve him in a compromising way. May the Lord bless us today to humble ourselves before him and not compromise at all. But to remember that he is holy, he is terrible, his name is terrible to exalt him and to get down at his footstool, to confess our sins and call upon the Lord, he will answer us. He will answer us and he will forgive. And if there's any chastening left over, it's the loving chastening of a father that is perfecting us. Right. And a loving, the loving chastening of a father that deserves to get glory from our foolishness. Right. May the Lord bless us to love Psalm 99 and to exalt our great God. Amen. Amen. Amen.